The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. This time, I would like to ask that you please uh, take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12, and today we're going to finish out the chapter, beginning in verse 19. Almost everybody in America is naturally attracted to some kind of sport or another. There are very few people who are not at least in some way interested in a sport, and I don't even mean necessarily that you like to play the game. Baseball, for example, is slow. It is methodical, and I I honestly think it's more about statistics to the people who like it than it actually is about watching the game. Yet for some reason, people can't resist it. Or maybe football is your game. Uh, 27 of the 50 most valuable teams of any sport in the world are part of the NFL. Now, I I hear that uh, the Kansas City Chiefs will play in the Super Bowl this year, and I don't know anything about football, but I know a lot of people from my home state of Kansas are going to be very happy about that. But we have to ask the question, what is sports really about? If you uh, have watched the NBA playoffs, if you watched last year, there was an ad that ran many times suggesting that sports is about glory. Sports is all about glory. Who will get the glory? Sports boils down to being able to say, who is really the best? Who is really the best here? Regardless of whether you are hitting a puck on the ice or throwing a ball into a hoop or one of the bizarre sports that they have, like wife carrying or chess boxing or underwater rugby, people will compete over anything All of these things are about proving, by way of competition, who is really the greatest. In February of 1964, Louisville native Muhammad Ali declared, I am the greatest. It's one of the most famous sports speeches of all time. That was ahead of his famous title fight with Sonny Liston. And while there is nothing wrong with sports or competition, it should not be a surprise to us that superstars and super athletes have a tendency towards an overinflated ego like when Carmelo Anthony infamously thanked himself at his ESPY speech for putting in all the hard work and dedication to his craft. But today in our text, we're going to see a man at a sporting event steal glory from God, and for it, he's going to die without, both in this life and the next. So allow me to remind you of where we've come from so we can get a good sense of where we're going. Last time we were here in the book of Acts, we learned about the death of the apostle James. It was at the hands of Herod Agrippa I, and you will remember that this puppet king was interested in gaining favor with the Jews. So what did he do? He attempted to take out one of the generals of the church. He knew these people are not popular within the Jewish people. So you know what? Let's just kill one of them and see how it goes. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. So Herod was able to capture and kill James. And he noticed everyone is overjoyed. He recognized that his cruelty was gaining him popularity. So he determined Peter is next up on the chopping block. But by the grace of God, Peter was miraculously released by an angel that very night that he was scheduled to be executed. Now, it must have been a shock to the guards. Now, if you imagine, there were 16 men responsible to watch Peter. 
16 to 1 are not good odds. And here Peter is not only watched by them, but he is chained up between two of them. And then there are two stationed right outside of his door. And then four more in the hallway that he must walk through to get out of the building. And as he is being guarded in a secure location, an angel appears and just removes the chains and tells him to get dressed and to walk out. What was going on with those guards? We have no idea. Were they in a trance? Were they asleep? What happened to them? We don't know. But it must have been shocking because as they came to, they realized our prisoner is gone. And now what we'll see is that the fate of these men is quite terrible. Please follow along now as I begin actually reading at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's thank the Lord for the, his glorious word, and let's pray for his work in it this morning. God, we come before you recognizing that this is a story of great terror. And for us, Lord, today, as we come before it, I pray that we would not respond inappropriately with just an eye that says, who cares? That was a man who died many years ago. Not with an eye that says, well, that's him, this is me. But with an eye that says, Lord, teach me. Teach me how to humbly give all the glory to God. Lord, I pray that today there would be great conviction in our hearts, anywhere that we have idolized ourselves, and that we would move over and rightfully place Christ on the throne where he belongs to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If we were going to rank all of the passages in the Bible that are most disturbing, this one at least ranks first place in the book of Acts. Those in the room with a vivid imagination might want to skip lunch after hearing what has happened to this man. So let's begin here by just making sure we all understand what was taking place with Herod Agrippa. Herod has now traveled to Caesarea. This city had previously been like a nothing mud hole on a map until his grandfather, Herod the Great, had built a harbor in Caesarea. This had previously been a treacherous place to dock, and so rarely would they actually bring in large ships. However, Herod the Great used the newly discovered invention of underwater concrete to make the largest artificial harbor in the world up to this time. In fact, Herod the Great was incredible when it came to ar architecture. He was uh, a great builder. He built many, many things that are still standing that you can see across the Middle East. And this was probably his crowning achievement. There was a harbor that went far out into the Mediterranean that permitted 300 
full-size ships to come and dock. This made Caesarea immediately one of the greatest trading ports in the world at the time. And he also, we also know from the historian Josephus the purpose for which Herod had traveled to Caesarea on this very day. There was an event that took place every five days, I'm, or five years. I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it was a form of like Olympic-type games. And they were dedicated to the Caesar. In particular, these games were dedicated to Caesar Claudius. And this is really helpful for us because now we know how to date exactly where we are in the book of Acts. We know this event took place on, in March of the year 44 AD. And Herod, his job as the ruler of the region was to stand up and officially open the games every morning. There were five days of games every five years. But Luke also tells us that there were some political issues that Herod was also dealing with while he was there during this time. In particular, the leaders of Tyre and Sidon had both found themselves on his bad side. And you don't want to be on the bad side of one of the Herods. Now, we don't know exactly why, but Herod was furious at them. And he was basically levying sanctions, if we want to use modern terminology, against them by holding grain back from his nation to theirs. Let me explain it this way. I grew up in Kansas, and although most of you have probably never been there, you've actually benefited from them. In fact, that is where you find the amber waves of grain that we sing about. Uh, If you have eaten bread, it is most likely because of the people who grow it in Kansas. Most of our wheat comes from that region of our country. It is the breadbasket of America. Now, it would be an ugly thing if the Midwest and the Northeast got into some kind of a trade war with one another. New York would have all the high-quality goods, they would have all of the imports, but they would also probably starve to death. Now, that's how the people of Tyre and Sidon were feeling. They were wealthy, they had a lot of high-value imports that they would often trade, but as much as they hated Herod Agrippa, they needed him so that they could, in order to feed their people, they needed him to have a change of heart so that their city-states could eat. So they figured out exactly how they were going to do this. They talked to Blastus, this man who was a chamberlain of Herod. They figured out exactly where he was going to be and how to get to him. And so they meet in this theater where they know Herod will be. And it seems like they sit in places exactly where he will see them. And they do so in order to flatter Herod. The theater that Herod would have been in was built up against the sea so that anyone who stepped up onto the stage from behind it would look like they were coming out of the sea itself. So if you imagine, there's 300 ships docked right there in the Mediterranean. And then right up by the water, you have this amphitheater and with a flat stage, and Herod walks up onto the stage as if he's walking out of the ocean itself. And here's where we see this man stepping onto the stage. It literally looked as though he was a, a deity, coming up from the water. And as we learn from Josephus, Herod timed his ascent perfectly to match the rising of the sun. So here's Josephus' exact words, this Jewish historian. He says, on the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly or completely out of silver. That would have been a very heavy robe. It was of a truly wonderful texture And he came into the theater early in the morning, and there the silver of his garment, being illuminated by fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and it was so resplendent as to spread awe over all those who looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, 
one place from another and another to another, though not for his good, that he was a god. Now, this is like Fashion Week meets the Olympics, right? All eyes are upon Herod. And as he stepped onto that stage and he heard the cries of all of those who started flattering him as a god, listen to how he responded according to Josephus. Josephus writes, Upon this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. Thankfully, we have a historian with even better information than Josephus, one who has more detail than Josephus could, because Dr. Luke has the great advantage of writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he is able to chronicle for us the spiritual angle that was going on in that moment, that Josephus and the delegates from Tyre and Sidon and all of the rest who were standing there, they never knew exactly why this took place unless they heard it from Luke. Luke simply states, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Interestingly, this is the exact same phrase that is used to be struck down that is only used in two other places in the entire book of Acts. It is used when Ananias dies and when Sapphira dies. And now, once again, we are seeing that God is very serious about sin. To everyone in the arena, they must have assumed that this sudden onslaught of stomach pain was naturally occurring. Even when the surgeon opened up Herod's belly to discover what was inside, I doubt that they had any awareness that this had been carried out by an angel. But Luke tells us that it was an angel who caused this terrible thing to happen. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 describes angels and their ministry this way. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, in the previous passage, we saw an angel doing just that. He goes to Peter and releases him so much so that Peter has no clue what's going on until he gets out of the prison and realizes, oh, this is real. Now we see an angel using his hand for the purpose of destruction against this man. He infests the guts of Herod with worms. Now, consider how this was such a glorious moment for Herod. If you were a king like this man, this is the kind of thing you live for. It's the moments when you get to dress up in all of your pomp and circumstance and stand before a giant crowd and let them all cheer for you. Let them all see your glory. That's what he loved And we know that he internalized it and he delighted in it because we see in the text that he refuses to give that glory and reflect it to the Lord. This is the kind of day that he had probably dreamed about. He was at the height of his beauty. He was at the height of his splendor. He was standing in a place of honor. He is being cheered by everyone who's there, even though we know from the context, these people are just flattering him. They don't like him, but they're saying this because they want him to like them. And in that very moment... Even as his political enemies were extolling him as a god, it is then that God chooses to bring him to such a low point that everyone who looks back on this man and see his death will cringe. There's some debate to what kind of worms these were. As far as I can tell from my research, it comes down to two possibilities. First of all, it's been suggested by many that there's this kind of round worm, this parasitic worm that's commonly found in humans who consume undercooked pork. So if, if this is the case, then this would have also been an indictment against him by the Jewish people who are looking at him and saying, you're half Jewish, you're the leader of the Jewish region, 
and you're still eating that stuff, clearly this is your own fault. So perhaps that's the case. We do know that uh, the roundworms in this case were uh, probably caused to burst through one of his internal organs at the very moment that this says the angel struck him down. I do find this doubtful since he was half Jewish. It would have been very difficult for him to be constantly and regularly consuming these products. So it's probably unlikely that this option is the one. The other more likely option, in my opinion, is this was actually an infestation of, of tapeworms. If you guys have ever heard of tapeworms, you know that they are terrifying and evil creatures that live in your body to absorb all of the nutrients from your body. Now, there's a particular kind of tapeworm that will reproduce asexually inside of a soft cyst that's similar to a bladder. And the bladder will grow and grow and grow with worms inside of it multiplying over and over. And all that they consume is the dead matter of the other worms inside of that sac until it reaches a point where that sac can no longer expand. And at that moment, it will burst, thrusting between 100 and 2 million parasitic tapeworms throughout your entire abdomen. This is usually something you find in the low abdomen, and when it spreads, it can go all the way from your head to your toe. More than likely, this is what was happening here with this man. At that point, there was... a a bubble that popped inside of this man at the command of an angel. How long had that been in there? We have no idea. It could have been years. But when God declares that it is time for a man to die, he will do it in one form or another. According to historians, including Josephus, after this initial moment of pain where he declared in front of the, all the people that he knew he was dying, Herod remained in writhing agony, not just for a few moments, but for five days until his body finally gave in to the worms. It has been suggested by some scholars, they believe they probably opened him and were trying to remove all of these, but they were unable to stop them and eventually they caused him to die. The sad reality of this is that after all of the horrible suffering he experienced for those five days, it only continued forever in eternity. In Mark 9, 47 through 48, Jesus said, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he describes hell this way, where their worm does not die and where their fire is not quenched. What does it mean that their worm does not die? Oftentimes, when Jesus would speak about hell, he would compare it to a physical place that the Jewish people would have known about and would have been able to visualize and understand. Specifically, he would compare it to Gehenna. Gehenna was a place with a dark and disturbing history in the nation of Israel. It was a ravine right outside of Jerusalem where child sacrifices had been done in part of the Old Testament. And so at one point, in order to ensure that this will never happen again, that no child will ever be destroyed in that place again, that place was turned into a giant trash pit. And don't think of it like a modern landfill where we have bulldozers pushing all the stuff and covering it up. No, their trash was disgusting. And not only that, it was much less sanitary than ours. They had no plastic. No, it was mostly made up of sewage and carcasses from animals that they had killed for food. It's where all the most vile and disgusting refuse of the entire city of Jerusalem was tossed. And it stunk so bad that eventually somebody had this great idea and said, you know what? Let's just light it on fire. So they went and they burned it. And if you've ever smelled burning trash, you will know that is a horrible smell. And not only that, 
But because of the year's worth of garbage that was there and because of how many people continued to feed it, the fire never died. It just went on and on and on with a continual source of fuel forever. And oftentimes when people would throw in animals that they had picked most of the meat from, they would begin to develop maggots in these large piles and they would eat the flesh off of whatever was left until the fire got to them and would destroy them. These large carnivorous worms were the kind that would make a meal out of an animal. They're the kind that you don't want to see. They're the size of my pinky finger, and they have teeth that are visible to the human eye. That particular kind of worm was visible and noticeable, and when Jesus says their worm will not die, he's talking about that. And Jesus keyed, on, keyed in on these horrible little monsters and said that those who suffer under the wrath of God will be like those who are thrown alive into Gehenna. With one difference. The pain won't stop. The pain will last forever because the worms won't die and the fire won't be quenched. The wrath of God for sin is eternal. That's terrible news. For as we're going to see in a few minutes, we are all more than deserving of this kind of eternal fate. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save people who deserve to die even eternally like this. People like Herod and people like Paul, do you realize there's not that much difference between them? They both sought to kill Christians. Both of them desired to pursue to the very end the church. Yet one of them saw Jesus and he repented of his sin. And he is now experiencing heavenly joy forever with the Lord. And, and on the other hand, Herod is experiencing more suffering now than he did at his death. Every believer in this room should be in tears over the abundant mercy of our God who has loved us and sent his son for us, that he would substitute his own son, Jesus, to suffer in our place, to suffer under something worse than worms, but under the wrath of God itself. And for those of you who are still in your sin, I plead with you, run to Jesus because he is willing and he is able to save even the most arrogant and most wicked of us. I am living proof that God is merciful. Trust in the Lord for forgiveness and you will be saved. This brings us now to the point of the sermon. Everything so far has been uh, explanation and introduction to the two questions that I think we need to answer from this text. Question number one, what is glory? And question number two, why is God jealous? First of all, what is glory? The fatal blow that befell Herod was due to the fact that he did not give God the glory. That's what we see from Luke. And we certainly don't want to fall into that same trap. So what is glory and how can you give glory? How can you take it away from God or keep it from God? Does God have all the glory or do we have some glory that we have to give? And, and if God doesn't have the glory, then does he not have everything that he needs? And if we're considering glory, then why do we need to give him anything more? Doesn't he have everything? Obviously, these questions are designed to help us realize that we probably use the term glory of God too often without even thinking about what it really means. The original meaning of the word glory in the, in the Hebrew language means weightiness or heaviness. In particular, it carries with it a sense of holiness and seriousness. So I'm going to try to help you to the best of my ability categorize what the Bible is talking about when it talks about glory. 
First of all, God is all glorious, meaning that the extremities of perfect holiness and beauty and honorable attributes are all not only found in him, but they are defined by who he is. He is glorious, meaning that he is worthy of all glory and that everything about him should cause glory to exist. So John Piper, I believe, describes as well when he explains God's glory this way. He says, the glory of God is the going public of God's infinite worth. He says, I define the holiness of God as the infinite value of God, the infinite intrinsic worth of God. And when that goes public in creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And human beings are manifesting his glory because we, create, we are created in his image. And we're trusting his promises so that we make him look gloriously trustworthy. But God is worthy to receive glory from us. He is worthy to receive glory from us. In fact, the great crime of all humanity is that we have recognized that God exists. Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19, they declare to us that we know, every person knows God is there. There's an awareness in the heart that God exists and his eternal attributes have made it evident that he must be there. Yet, even though we know he is there, the crime of all humanity is that instead of giving him the glory, we have turned to give glory to other things. And not just random things, but things that God himself made. How insulting that we are saying, you know what, God, I know that this thing deserves all of the honor and praise from my life. I will see that and I will be in awe. I will be amazed at this created thing. Meanwhile, the one who made it is in heaven saying, look at me over here. I made that thing. If you think that's powerful, think who made it. Think of the ancient people. They worshiped the stars. It says that God breathed them out. Today, I don't think there's that much different between the scientific community and those of the ancient world. They basically worship the stars as well in a different form. God's saying, look at me. Don't look to those things and be in awe. We give glory to all the things that we find enjoyment and pleasure in. We pursue them because we like them. We think they are going to satisfy us. And God is looking at us and saying, look over here. You think that will make you happy? No. Look to me because I am the one that truly satisfies. So we turn and we give glory to created things. And I think Paul is probably even just twisting the knife a little bit in Romans chapter one when he, he talks about all the different created things. And he, he says, even creeping things like lizards, you make that your God? No, worship him alone for he is worthy. So in this way, glory is given to God when you see him and your eyes are simultaneously filled with tears of joy and also tears of fearful awe where your jaw just can't close because you are aware now of who he really is. You personally give God glory when you realize that nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you have ever completed correctly, nothing that you have ever succeeded in, nothing that you have ever done that you would categorize as good has been due to your own innate wisdom or power, but only because God has worked both in you to will and work for his own good pleasure. That's what we were saying earlier. Yet, but uh, not I but Christ through me. And according to Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14, the purpose of the coming of Christ was so that, quote, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
just like the water covers the seas. In other words, God desires that he would be known. He is not hiding himself from us. Part of the great news about God's glory is that he desires for us to be aware of exactly how great he is. Our purpose for existing as a church is to do that very thing. We exist so that the glory of the Lord would be made manifest in both our public lives and our personal lives, and so that we would be like individual lights in the darkness that gather together to make a big flash bulb. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those two things are not separatable. You can't change that. They are inextricably linked. That when you give God the glory, it is because you are enjoying God. When you see him for who he is, it causes delight and awe. And that is a description of glory. Herod heard people giving him the glory. Look at that. It's a man with the voice of a God. In other words, they're saying his commands are just as powerful as God. His authority, it reaches to the same extent as God. And here this man who should have immediately deflected seems to absorb those praises and delight in them. Later on in the book, we're going to see that uh, Paul and Barnabas are also called gods um, by a group of people. And we're going to see that they respond quite differently and therefore their end is quite different than Herod's. But we're supposed to always reflect any praise that comes in our direction. We're supposed to always give the glory to the true author of everything good. Every single compliment that comes your way is another opportunity for the world to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, as Jesus says they should, according to the Sermon on the Mount, correct? But that will only happen if you tell them where the glory is supposed to go. Yet not I, but Christ in me. The sad reality is that we are all naturally inclined to be just like Muhammad Ali or Carmelo Anthony, We like to think that we are the greatest and that we are deserving of adulation, that we are deserving of praise, that we are worthy of honor. We like it when people recognize us. We don't even realize that we are delighting in ourselves in that moment, that we just want to have our ears tickled by those people who see and savor us. We don't realize that in doing so, we're robbing God of what is rightfully his. Which brings us now to our second question. Why is God jealous? Why was it wrong for Sarah to be jealous of Hagar and for the 11 sons to be jealous of Joseph and for Saul to be jealous of David, but then it's right for God to be jealous? That when we see this, that it's something we extol and appreciate about him. How is it that this category of emotion that we experience as a sin so often is somehow viewed as virtuous when it's applied to the the king of the universe? Well, here's the answer. It's that jealousy is not always wrong. In fact, there are times when jealousy is the only right response to a situation. For example, Proverbs 6 explains that there is just one of many reasons to avoid adulterous relationships. And the reason that it, one of the reasons it gives is that it will cause the woman's husband to become furious with jealousy. Rightfully so. Is that not the right kind of jealousy? What makes it right for a husband to be jealous is that somebody is trying to take his wife away. The wife belongs to him in that sense. She does not belong with the other man. Therefore, it is right for the husband to feel jealousy. 
Jealousy is a sin when it is applied to something that does not belong to us or that God has chosen to remove from us. It's a sin when you are refusing to let go in your heart what God has taken away from your hands. This is what the 10th commandment was talking about when it says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or livestock or it goes through that entire long list. Or if we want to modernize it, the car or the job or the boat or retirement account or anything else, don't have a heart that says, I want that. That should belong to me. The Bible does teach us that God is a jealous God. For example, when God is renewing his covenant with Israel in Exodus chapter 34, he gives them clear instructions as to how they are supposed to deal with the foreign gods that show up among them. He says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God lest you should make covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and your daughters whore after the gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Notice that God is using the metaphorical relationship language intentionally. He is using the idea of jealousy here because he will then compare what they are going to do, and he knows they are going to do, to an adulterous relationship. He is the husband, Israel is the bride in this scenario, and he is telling the nation not to do anything that is going to cause her to go back into her ways of prostitution. Don't do it, Israel. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 24, describes God as a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, the idea that he is angry with anyone who seeks to separate him from his bride is what we are getting here. That when somebody tries to come between God and his people, he becomes furious. He becomes jealous. That is my child. That is my bride. But remember that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. This means that every attribute that exists in God is an eternal attribute. And it means that we need to remember here that God's jealousy and ours are very different. Just consider for the fact, most of the time when we are dealing with jealousy in our lives, it also is wrapped up in the fact that we don't know as much as we want to know. We are naturally suspicious. God is not suspicious. He cannot be suspicious because there is nothing God does not know. He knows every detail of everything that has ever happened or ever will happen. So jealousy in God is not made up of thinking evil of those who have not committed evil, which most of the time when we're talking about jealousy now, that's what we're dealing with at least inside of relationships. But within God, he knows everything about you. And so when it says he is jealous, it is not something built on some kind of fraudulent emotion like we often experience. Rather with God, it is built on reality. In the pantheon of the Greeks and the Romans, everything, every, basically every pantheon that exists, whether you look at the Vikings or the Mayans or whoever, and you consider all of the gods that these people created, these gods were basically nothing more than giant babies. They were very powerful individuals who were completely sold to their own emotions. They're basically big versions of people with no virtue. Remember that God is not like them. We see that Zeus was a slave to his lust, Ares was a slave to his temper, Dionysus was a slave to pleasure, and you could just go on and on and on. Every single one of the gods is a slave to something. All of these imaginary deities were just larger than life versions of the same flawed issues in people. But God is not like that. 
the God of the Bible, the one true and living God is completely holy and he is totally unique. His emotions are unlike ours. In fact, I think one of the best explanations for God's emotions in the entire Bible is found in Malachi chapter three, verse six, which says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, or because of this, you children of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, if I did have emotions like you, you would all be dead. God's not gonna put up with us if he was like us, but thank God that he is not like us and that his temper is not like ours and that his jealousy is different than ours. If God was affected by mood swings, Israel would have never made it past the Red Sea. But because he is unchanging and his will is based only on the sole purpose and pleasure of his own plans, for that reason, we can trust that he is always going to keep his promises. With him, there is no shadow of turning. So what does that have to do with jealousy? Simply this, God is jealous for his own glory, and that does not change, nor will it ever change. He is jealous rightfully of his own glory because, as we have already noted, he is all glorious. Therefore, he must be jealous for his own glory. He is literally the only being in the universe who can rightly pursue his own glory without being sinful. And not only that, it is good for us. It is good for us that God pursues his own glory. Consider just a a couple quick things. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other or my praise to carved idols. Here we clearly see that God is unwilling to share his glory. He will not donate it to anything that he has created. He will not allow anything less than himself to be seen as valuable as himself. Because if he did that, he would be lying. For none of those things could actually make the people he has created happy. If he were to say, yes, satisfy yourself in those created things, he would be telling you something that would harm you. And that would be bad for you. But because God says, I and I alone am glorious, look to me and be in awe and be amazed and be satisfied. Therefore, we see this is good for us. Let me hit this now from another angle. Consider the first two commandments out of the big 10 that God gave the nation of Israel. And then consider the subtext that God gave Israel concerning that Mosaic law. He says, first, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then he tells them why. Because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The first two tenets of the Mosaic Code were underscored by the fact that God declared his people must put God first and reject idols because those things rightly kindle his jealousy. Here's the problem. It's not just Herod who draws the jealousy of the Lord. God is perpetually jealous for his glory and desirous for his name to be magnified throughout the earth. That is what God has been doing since creation. He told Adam and Eve what they were supposed to do was represent him throughout the world. It was their job to magnify his name and give glory to him, even as they reproduced generations of people who would see God for who he truly was. But notice that God in his jealousy is never selfish. In fact, 
He is exactly the opposite of selfish. He has literally given himself to us. He has sent his son to make us part of his family. And he has caused us to be united to Christ and thereby given us access to see his beauty and his majesty and to be in awe of him forever. So let me land the plane this way. There are those who, like Herod, are going to ignore God. They're going to hear this sermon and they're going to think, big deal, big whoop, means nothing to me. Or maybe they'll even be like Herod and actively seek to destroy God's will and God's plan and God's kingdom. Everyone who dies in that position will sadly never experience the great joy of the universe, which is to know and see and savor the glory of God for eternity. But to all who do hear the good news that God is not only holy and not only righteous and not only perfect, but that he is willing to give those things to us by his son. By the vicarious death of Jesus, all who believe in him will be counted as righteous and then be able to see with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord. I've come to think that that passage in 2 Corinthians might be one of the most amazing things that is in the entire New Testament, that we are going to be able to look without dying on the unveiled face of God. Trust me, brothers and sisters, we who have been delivered like Paul will thank God for eternity that we're not like Herod. Not just that we haven't experienced that kind of death, but for those who are, who are in Christ, we experience joy forever. But for those who are like Herod in this room, living for yourself, living for your own name, desirous to have your glory overpopulating this planet, I plead with you, repent. Repent and turn to the one and only one who is worthy of your every breath. If you turn your attention back to the text, you will see that Herod's most aggressive attempts were still unable to stay the hand of God. There's nothing he could do to stop the kingdom. Jesus says that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. In verse 24, we see that happening. The word of God increased and multiplied. Herod wanted to take them out. He has no power to do so. And in God's timing, when he says, in just a moment, his stomach burst filled with these worms. God can stop any foe of the church. We need to pray that he would. If you thematically divide the book of Acts in two, this is now the cutoff. We have now reached the end of part one. So what we're going to see taking place in the near future is that the lens of the camera will turn away from Peter as the main character and will focus as we return on the glory of God spreading across the world through the ministry efforts of Paul. Let's look forward to that as we pray together. God, we ask that your name would be lifted high, that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. I pray, Lord, that there would be people in this room who are more aware and more in awe of your glorious reality and nature than they were before they walked in the room. Lord, I I thank you that even though we are so quickly distracted by the shiny things of this earth, that you reveal to us over and over and over that you are the only surpassing value, value in the universe. God, please help us today to see Jesus more and to be more like him, for to behold him is to love him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.